So good evening. My name's Darren. I'm a member of 645, just like most of you will be. And I have the privilege of reading the Bible passage for us tonight. Tonight's passage comes from Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, verses 36 to 53. So starting at verse 36. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with the power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Thanks. Thanks, Darren. Um, while in the middle of the message here, um, there's going to be a number of Bible readings and uh, Carolyn is going to come up and help uh, me to read those. So if she comes up, um, don't think I've been naughty and she's going to <laughs> drag, drag me off. It's just to be a help. <laughs> Isn't that true, Carolyn? <laughs> this evening we come to the final passage in Luke's Gospel. It's a passage which parallels the more detailed account that opens uh, Luke's sequel to his gospel, known as the Acts of the Apostles. The account actually opens in the middle of a very excited and animated conversations that were taking place between the disciples and Cleopas and most likely his wife, uh, who'd rushed back to Jerusalem at night from their home in Emmaus, uh, some 10 kilometres away. Um, Josh uh, spoke about this last week. And they'd rushed back to Jerusalem at night, which is a very risky thing, to share with the disciples their impossibly wonderful claim that Jesus had actually risen physically from the dead and that that very afternoon they'd spent a good amount of time with him on the road to and at their home in Emmaus. Now, although Thomas, who we often know as Doubting Thomas, although he wasn't with them at this meeting, Thomas shared the same conviction with the other disciples that, well, if something seems too good to be true, well, it probably isn't. Now, in the middle of all that commotion that was going on in the house as Cleopas and his wife met with the other disciples, suddenly 
mid-sentence, Jesus appeared among them and he scared the daylights out of them as he did so. Yet, despite this happening, or perhaps because of it, they couldn't allow themselves to believe what it was that they were actually seeing. The thought of a physical resurrection just wasn't on their radar. It was just something that wasn't in their comprehension. On the one hand, yes, they saw someone, they, it was Jesus, but, and they wanted it to be Jesus, but on the other hand, those things just don't happen. They couldn't bring themselves actually to believe that what they were seeing was real. The best they could manage was to try and think, well, perhaps it's Jesus' ghost. And even that possibility caused them to freak out. They were in this confused panic of being astonished and ecstatic and yet at the same time stunned and terrified. Now Jesus' response was very sensible. He said, peace. It worked on the storm, might work on them. And he invited them to view his crucifixion wounds and to touch him, to show that not only was it Jesus, but that he was real. And he asked for and ate food in front of them. Now when Jesus had eaten with Cleopas and his wife in their home, he opened their eyes to so that they were able to recognise him as Lord. Now, as Jesus is eating with the disciples, he opens their minds to understand the Old Testament scriptures, to understand that these scriptures all point beyond themselves to the fulfilment of God's saving work on earth. And this is a fulfilment that was to be made a living, effectual reality by the Messiah. And this is what Jesus says in verses 24, which Darren's just read to us. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Now these are some of the truths that are fulfilled by Jesus and the scriptures that point to them. Firstly, the Messiah will suffer and be put to death, but he will live again. So from Isaiah, from Isaiah 52. See, my servant will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. And from Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked 
and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So the Messiah will suffer and be put to, get, put to death, but he will live again. So also the Messiah, the Son of Man, will ascend into glory in heaven. And so we read from Daniel chapter 7. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. The Messiah will inaugurate a new relationship between God and his people. From Jeremiah 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbour or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. And because the Messiah has finished his work and has ascended to glory, God will pour out his spirit on all people and usher in the last days. So from Joel 2. And afterward I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Thanks, Carolyn. Well, just a few days before this meeting uh, of Cleopas and the disciples, Jesus had told the disciples and in John 14, If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things 
and will remind you of everything I have said to you. But true, very truly I tell you, it's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. Now in verses 50 to 51 of the gospel, um, which is, takes place actually 40 days after the resurrection, Jesus leads the disciples a few kilometres out of Jerusalem to a town called Bethany, where after blessing him, blessing them, they witness Jesus being carried up into heaven and disappearing. Now, there are four reasons why the ascension is so important. Firstly, the ascension explains Jesus' absence. Now, one of the self-evident truths of living in this world is that we are limited by space and time. We are always somewhere. We can't be in two places at once. We always are somewhere, even if that somewhere is unknown. Now, if someone in this world is alive, we understand that even though they might be ab absent from us physically, they are still somewhere. You know, people at home say, well, OK, where's, where's your kids tonight? Oh, they're at Christchurch. Well, we hope they are. But if they were to come to Christchurch, then they would be able to find you. You're in a specific place and in a specific time. We understand that anyone, if, it, if the wherever someone is, if it's, if it's known and if it's accessible, we know that they may be found. Now, even if someone in this world has died, we understand that although they are absent from us, their remains are still somewhere. And if that somewhere, like a gravesite, is known and accessible, we can go to that place. Now, Christians believe, we believe, that Jesus is alive. And so we need to be able to say where he is. Now at dawn on that very first Easter day, the angels pointed to the empty tomb and said, he's not here. Right? He's alive, but he's not here. He's risen. And when Jesus ascended, the angels that were also there at the time said to the men, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. And Peter wrote to the churches in Asia Minor, in 1 Peter 1, though you have not seen Jesus, you love him. And we, along with believers right through the ages, need to explain why we worship and love someone whom we have never seen. And whom, even if we searched this earth, even if we went over every little nook and cranny, above the sea, below the sea, everywhere, we would neither locate nor find him. We need to be able to explain why it is that we worship and love someone who is not here. There's only one reason why. And that's because 40 days after Jesus rose again, he ascended into heaven never to die again. As it says in Hebrews 7, Therefore Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. And secondly, the ascension enthrones Jesus at the Father's right hand. 
the ascension is about where Jesus is going and why he's going there. It was Jesus returning in victory to his heavenly father, returning to where he had always dwelt in glorious love from all eternity, only this time with a physical body. But it wasn't Jesus simply just going home after having done his work. Jesus ascended to his glorification and to his enthronement. Now the scriptures constantly speak of Jesus' ascension culminating in Jesus being seated at the right hand of the Father and that he is seated there as one who is victorious over sin, over death and over life itself. Now this is depicted in Revelation chapter 5 in a bit of a, a paradox there where Jesus is described as the Lion of Judah. This animal, this creature which is so strong, the king of the jungle. Lions are constantly referred to as kings in symbols, in coats of arms and all of those sorts of things. So here we see Jesus described and visualised as the Lion of Judah, the one who, is, who has conquered. And yet when John turns to see the lion, what does he see? but a lamb, as though it has been slain, but which has now come back to life. It's the contrast between Jesus as the victor and Jesus as the suffering servant. Also that we have the victory because of Jesus, but until he returns, we identify with him as the slain lamb. That's one of those things in Revelation was largely written to answer the question, if Jesus is victorious, why do we still suffer? And it's because of that lamb-lion dichotomy that uh, those things happen. But we see Jesus, the lion of Judah who is conquered, presented now as the lamb who has been slain, but who is now alive and standing in the heavenly throne room, surrounded by a host of elders, living creatures and believers who all worship him and his father. As Jesus told the church in Laodicea, I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. One little aside, how many of you have got Nike shoes? Okay, well, when you look at the swoosh, Nike is the Greek word for victory, and there was a, a goddess who was the goddess of victory. So whenever you see the little swoosh on your shoes, note that Jesus, who is called the Nike in the New Testament, as are we who are with him and are victorious, we too are Nikes, whenever you look at your shoes, Remember what Jesus done, has done and where he is now. There you go. Can't say the same for Adidas or any of the others, but you can, <laughs> but you can say that for Nike. The other reason is, another reason is the ascension enables Jesus to continue his priestly work for us. On the cross, Jesus paid and he paid in full the penalty for our sins. But Jesus' priestly, in other words, his intercessory work, didn't end there. In heaven, it continues to this day where Jesus appears in the presence of God on our behalf. Now, this has everything to do with Jesus' perfect self-sacrifice. As it says in Hebrews 9, Jesus entered once for all into the holy place by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. The ascension marks the transition between Jesus' earthly ministry and his heavenly ministry. And without that transition, 
one to the other, Jesus' saving work, our salvation, would not be activated. Sounds a bit odd, but stay with me. And it wouldn't be activated because the transforming power of the Holy Spirit would not have been released. In short, no ascension, no salvation. The reason is that if it hadn't been applied, Jesus' saving work, which was completed on the cross, would have been as though it was quarantined. It had to be released and applied to our lives so that we might be transformed and forgiven and saved, that all the benefits it achieved had to be applied. And it would be applied by the Holy Spirit who would be sent to do just that after Jesus had ascended to heaven. So his completed work opened the doors for this flood of blessing of all that he had achieved, which is now applied to us by the Holy Spirit. If Jesus hadn't ascended or the Spirit hadn't come, we wouldn't be saved. The potential would be there, but it would just be like something that was locked away in a safe that was never going to be opened. Now, this is another reason. The ascension serves as the launching pad for Jesus' conquest and return. Now, Jesus didn't ascend into heaven for a bit of a rest after he'd you know, done all the work on the cross. On the cross, Jesus crushed the head of Satan's mutiny against God. But Jesus launched his last day's offensive against Satan's ongoing work from heaven's throne. It began at Pentecost, when Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit and began liberating the prisoners. Now Jesus said that this was one of the main reasons for his ascension. In John 16, It's good for you that I am going away. Unless I go away, the Advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now at the price of his own life, Jesus purchased people for salvation from all over the world. But now those same people must be born again into eternal life and gathered together as the bride of Christ. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. You were dead spiritually in your transgressions and sins. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ Jesus even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And so without the work of the Holy Spirit, there would be no gospel. There would be no New Testament. There would be no faith there would be no new birth. Without the work of the Holy Spirit, there would be no Christians. You and I would not be here. We would have no reason to be here. It is only because of the work of the Holy Spirit applying the completed work of Jesus that we have been born again, given faith, and assembled into a Christian community. Now, as a person of the Trinity... The Holy Spirit mediates the person and the presence of both the, and the power of both the Father and the Son. So that in a very real sense, 
Jesus is here with us even now. This is how, despite him being in heaven, Jesus can promise to be with us until the very end of the age and until the Great Commission is accomplished, until all of God's people are gathered and until Jesus returns to this world in glory to transform our lowly bodies and to, tra and to restore all things to what they should have been always at the beginning in what will be a new heaven and a new earth. So Jesus is physically absent from us. But part of faithful discipleship, part of our faithful discipleship here on earth is to cultivate that desire to be with him and for him to be with us. And so Paul, you may recall in Romans, was torn between, I, on the one hand, I really desire to go and be with Christ, which, which is far better than being here. But he knew that for that congregation, his ministry to them was essential for their growth. And so he knew that until the time came for him to go, he needed to be here ministering to those people so that they too might come to the mindset where they realised that it is far better for them to go and depart and be with Christ. For when Jesus returns, we will no longer have to choose between the present, being present in our body, and being absent from the Lord, because then we will be with the Lord forever. And so the final thing is to say, don't waste the ascension. It's a strange phrase, you probably wouldn't have heard that one before, don't waste the ascension. In other words, don't let the benefits of the ascension pass you by. Don't miss them. Firstly, Jesus is king. So let's worship him with heart, mind, soul and all our strength. We need to recognise that this universe is not a democracy. It's a theocracy. God is king. We need to recognise that we are not at the centre of the universe. He is. We are not. We need to recognise also that Jesus is high priest. We need to recognise and understand and enjoy the fact that we have in him an advocate, someone who speaks on our behalf, an intercessor, someone who pleads our cause with the Father, who, someone who knows what it is like to be human and to suffer unspeakable horrors, to understand what it's like to be broken-hearted, to understand what it's like to be physically or even sometimes perhaps emotionally ill or unwell, who knows what it's like to be deeply hurt physically, psychologically and emotionally, and who assures us that we are welcome to approach his throne of grace because he understands and he is able to bring us help in our time of need. Jesus will return. We are indebted to him for our very lives. And that debt is inseparable, really, from an obligation to join in the Holy Spirit's mission of making Jesus known, as he says, to the ends of the earth. Now, that might seem a bit too heavenly-minded. I mean, you know we talk a lot about wholehearted disciples of Jesus, and if that sounds a bit too heavenly-minded, well, that's okay, because that's what the ascension does. It actually draws our attention away from ourselves draws it to Jesus and urges us, to, because of the Holy Spirit who is sent, that we might grow to be more like him. And so let me close with these, these verses from Colossians chapter 1. Since then you have been raised with Christ. 
Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. So, thank God for the ascension. Amen.